Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. I'm going to start us off with a point earlier this summer. This is a photo that we took out on Brighton Beach, which you can properly see. Um, and it was taken quite early in the morning, in around mid-July or so. So what we've got here is we're sitting on top of kind of the slope of pebbles here. Uh, we've got with us, we've got a laptop. You can see it in the corner of the screen. We've got an enormous antenna, which I think is broadly bigger than a small child. And we've got lots of cabling that's outside and at that stage tangled around our feet. Um, and in between, because it's quite early in the morning, we've been kind of waving off the attentions of various people who have been coming down with metal detectors to try and search metal on the beach. We've been trying to fight off the attentions of very, very large seagulls. We've also been trying to squint against the sunlight into the screen itself <coughs> to look for a very, very specific and small peak on the radio spectrum. What we've been trying to do at this point is to look for infrastructure. So the signal hunting that we were doing here was part of the R&D process for the development of familiars, which was an immersive data installation that we built for the Brighton Digital Festival. The familiars itself aim to kind of bring to presence and to explore the logistical infrastructures that we depend on, but which are often either hidden or kept out of sight, and that we only really notice when they start to break. Familiars took the form of a large floor-projected map large enough for audiences to be able to walk through and explore, representing an area roughly 100 kilometres around Brighton, where it was installed at Lighthouse Arts. We collected live data from nearby planes, freight ships and trains, using software defined radio, or SDR for short. We combined this fairly recent development in small-scale radio hardware with open source software to detect, receive and demodulate the radio signals from these vessels to reveal the data being broadcast by them. We use this information to, uh, to show the vessel's live movements across the map with text readouts exploring what the data revealed about the, data, the vessel's ownership and state. This talk is not intended as a technical how-to, but as a way of unpacking the larger questions which we were addressing through familiars, which were, what does citizen access look like for these types of systems? What does our access and engagement with them tell us about how access to forms of open data is mediated? and who this data is really intended for. We're, we argue that engaging with crucial questions around control, ownership, and access to data requires an understanding of their physical components and context, and that close analysis of this data can reveal much about our access to these at once public and opaque infrastructures. So, on the map that you can see, the red lines that are moving across are the planes that we were tracking. Now. Planes themselves um, broadcast their position, their altitude, their speed in a heading to nearby planes. They do this via the automatic dependent surveillance broadcast system, which they each carry the ADSB. And they broadcast it at the 190 megahertz on the radio frequency. So we collected this data directly. We used antennas that were kind of located in specific points around Brighton itself. Um, and we had about 100k um, range from the antenna itself. We probably could have had a larger range than this, but we were experiment experimenting with number antenna. And again, we had limited budget and we had limited time. So one of the things, again, that we were thinking about is what is actually possible for us? What can we do at this point in time to gather in this data from ADSB? Now, to get this data, um, ADSB effectively broadcasts at line of sight. Um, so anything that interferes with the signal, this, kind of this line that's coming down, whether it's the terrain, whether it's buildings, whether it's hills, will start to block out the signal itself. And we were doing this in Brighton. And so we had kind of these weird black spots that started appearing around the map as we were collecting the data itself, and particularly which became visible when we had the live map running itself. 
So we'd have the kind of a situation where you'd see kind of the planes, the red lines moving across the map, and then suddenly they'd drop off, and suddenly they'd vanish. And this was really quite disconcerting to start to see until we really, you, can, you start to think about that what you're seeing in this absence isn't a plane itself completely vanishing. It's a signal that's vanishing. There's simply a drop that's happening with the signal there as well. So particularly, say, around kind of this area where we had the downs, things would start to just... There was generally a lack of plane movement in there as well. Up to the north of the map as well, just around here, we had Gatwick marked as well. And what was really interesting is we very rarely saw planes actually coming into land at Gatwick. We saw them going at altitude at the top, but we, ne we rarely saw them kind of around Gatwick itself. And there were kind of a number of hypotheses might be why this might be, whether it was kind of the building structure at Gatwick or whether it was kind of electromagnetic interference that was coming from the airport itself. Because again, EMI and weather conditions can very severely interfere with the signals that we were, um, that we were gathering. So in addition to just showing the tracking, we also wanted to kind of bring in a lot more information to bear on each vessel as they move through the map to allow people who are engaging with this to triangulate this data and get a sense of not only what this thing was doing, but like what its behavior was, what was actually really going on with this as well. So we already had position and altitude and speed, um, speed and tail number and heading the direction on a 360-degree compass for where these things were going. Um, but we also, because we had the tail number, we could also then figure out which carrier the plane belonged to as well. And this is quite important because some planes with their carrier numbers, like British Airways, use BAW, so it's kind of it's obvious where they're coming from. But some, like Southwest Airlines, use um, WOW, so it's not always apparent just to look at it, what this, you know, where the plane, uh, who the plane belongs to. And having these kind of these different sources of information, as well as kind of the live movement of it as well, allowed us to allowed our audiences to think about what was actually really going on here with the planes. So this was something that we saw quite frequently, particularly around mid-afternoon. Um, and what it is, is, is the stacks forming just south of Gatwick. When planes start to come into land and there's not enough space for them at the airport to come in, then they'll go into a holding pattern and they'll start to circle and circle. And we kept the movement of the plane live on the map for as long as we had an actual signal for it. And again, once the signal dropped, this would drop as well. And so from this, you can start to see, well, okay, you know there's a circle there, and you can see what altitude they're at, and these are generally at about 7,000 feet or no, so you can get a sense just from this that this is the planes coming in. But you would also be able to triangulate different aspects of this too. If you saw planes coming in that are still at about 30 or 40,000 feet, you knew they were out they were altitude and probably not coming into land. From the directions they were coming on, whether they were going towards Heathrow or Gatwick or Southampton airports as well, you could start to sense make a lot about what the behavior of these things were just from the kind of different forms of information that we were bundling onto them. An important part of what we were doing with the planes as well was thinking about legacy systems. Um, so the technologies which planes were using to communicate with uh, were dependent on very, very old radio technologies that have been used in and around vessels more generally since around the 1900s and on planes since the 1930s. So they're very, very old technologies. And even the technologies that have been used to capture these by air traffic control and engage with are still fairly old. Uh, until quite recently, air traffic controllers have been using cathode ray um, tubes-based um, technology as a kind of engagement system. And this is a photo taken from the inside of an EasyJet cockpit about three weeks ago uh, when we were um, held down by all the fog that happened at Gatwick and we were allowed to, well, I was allowed to go in the cockpit. Um, so you can kind of see there's the, kind of the tracking that starts to happen here, but back at air traffic control, you're still dealing with these systems that are so heavily inbuilt that take such a long time to be able to, and so, co so costly to replace and to retrain everyone. They kind of get embedded into a system in a way that, when it might, in other words, in other ways be kind of more fruitful to replace them with something newer. There's also other elements about kind of how this communication happened as well. Um, 
the communication that was happening from the planes to air traffic control was really intended as a direct communication between them and also other planes in that um, sector and air of airspace can listen in as well. So this wasn't really data that was intended for us to be picking up. This was data that was intended for air traffic controllers to get a sense of where planes were and particularly for takeoff and landing to guide them in and out of, kind of the optimum pathways and if anything went wrong to kind of, kind of guide them across the sky. Um, and other planes as well uh, could also can listen into other kind of transmissions if they're in the right sector so that they know what's going on around them. But that wasn't really meant for us. And what specifically wasn't meant for us either was actually the, the language of air traffic control. In the UK, there's, it's illegal to listen in and intercept the audio, the, kind of the, the chatter of air traffic controllers and pilots themselves. So we were dependent on public records to kind of bring that element of it into what we were doing. There were kind of all these interesting kind of layers of what we could and couldn't get access to as we were listening. So to move on to ships. Now, ships on our map were represented by white lines, and these moved a lot more slowly and seemed to be actually very, very close together, although actually when you looked at them, you realised they were still a, a couple of kilometres apart from each other in the sea. And again, the technologies that were being used by ships to communicate with each other were the, uh, very, very similar to planes. There's a lot of language and, and commonality between how the, kind of the direction and the, the broadcast mechanisms of ships and planes themselves and the heritage kind of ideas of them being kind of ships of the water or ships of the sky. Um, ships themselves were using the automatic identity system, which broadcasts on two frequencies. Um, and again, as with planes, this is a line of sight communication. So back on the beach, that was where we'd start to think, well, okay, we can pick this up. We can figure out how to do this. We'll get an antenna. We'll go down and listen in, and we'll be able to get that data, which is being directly transmitted by the ships themselves, and we can, we can directly funnel that into the installation. And it didn't work. Um, we went down with a series of increasingly powerful antennas. Uh, we sat on various parts of the beach and various kind of points around Brighton coastline. Um, and it, it didn't work at all. We weren't in line of sight. Um, and we thought, well, okay, I mean, what we can do is we can take a boat out. You know, we can go out actually into the middle of the sea and sit there in the line of sight of the boats themselves. So we can get that signal. But again, you know, thinking about this in terms of citizen access, this wasn't practical. We couldn't do that. We didn't know how far we'd have to go out. We didn't know kind of what equipment we'd have to bring with us. Um, and that in itself, the, the extra logistics of going out probably about 60K into the water with all the kit on board we'd need to kind of pick up the AIS transmissions uh, would have created even more technical, diff technical difficulties. So we had to find other ways around it. So, I mean, I mean, as you can see from the, the, the readouts given from the ships, they're actually they're very data-rich in terms of the information that they were broadcasting as part of the AIS signals. So you get, what you don't get with planes is things like destination come through, but also type of vessel. So specifically, we knew exactly which cargo vessels and uh, tankers to be uh, looking at. So we didn't have to worry about having to pass out pleasure vessels, for example. So we knew we wanted this this data. So then we started uh, to look at what other processes we could be going through to, to capture this. So to, to negotiate the issues that we had with line of sight, um, we use an online API to supply data on nearby cargo and tanker ships collected from, from the worldwide AIS network. Um, this makes the data very consistent uh, in its delivery, but in contrast to the data received from planes, we had no control over how this data was collected, filtered, or processed. So APIs are opaque processes for the most part. Uh, well, we, we make requests and receive responses, but often struggle to judge the validity of the data. Our initial disappointment at being foiled by the elusive nature of the AIS transmissions offered the opportunity to compare the direct access we had to the plain data against the, the black box of the API. With APIs being perhaps the most common point of access, for this data for most of us. Its inclusion in the project allowed us to include these questions of mediation in the work. Uh, 
while presenting further examples of how geography and broadcast technology shape and define our interactions with data. So the third stage of vessels that we were looking at were trains, this other kind of key component of logistical infrastructure. So trains send their communications via GSMR, which is the Global System for Mobile Communications Railway. So it's uh, a GSM-based system uh, that has been tailored specifically for trains. So they, they typically use an uplink and a downlink frequency uh, around about 876.94 was the uplink frequency uh, in the southern part of the UK. But that moves by about 50 hertz up or down, depending on where you are. Um, so it encodes voice communications, status messages, and other data via the same technology used for cell phone communication. As with cell phone communications, it's illegal to intercept GSMR transmissions if you're not the intended receiver. We could see when the 876.94 megahertz uplink was used on a frequency graph such as this, but could not legally intercept what was being sent. So we represented this obstruction by briefly illuminating on the map, as you see here, the, this yellow line that you see would appear only when the uplink frequency was detected. And that yellow line is uh, a map of all of the rail network in the area of uh, East Sussex where, that we were looking at. Um, this also triggered a sub-base pulse in the room at the same moment that lasted for the duration of that frequency. So that wherever you were in that room, wherever you were looking at, you knew when that moment happened. But that's basically all you knew. The audience could then experience the moment of communication, but we could all only guess at its content. Uh, this approach converted ambiguity into an opportunity for interpretation and contemplation. The question of why this data was missing became a talking point, pointing against the dense layers of information present from sea and air vessels. The situation also made it clear that whatever our engagement with the system, we're not intended to analyze their workings in this way. Most of us interact with trains far more than we do ships or planes, though our observation of their movements and communications is actually the most problematic of the three. GSMR has only recently been adopted in the UK. Rollout was in, has been pushed back year on year, but it's now mostly happened throughout the country. The previous method, Cab Secure Radio, or CSR, uh, used to be routinely intercepted by train spotters and amateur radio enthusiasts. It's, a, it's around about 4, 410, 420 megahertz. Um, listening to the trains became a popular component of those practices. Uh, the, this intimate relationship with the infrastructure that those enthusiasts had is all but gone now. The deployment of the data-rich GSMR form of communication has had the effect of decreasing our level of access to the inner workings of the system and represented the first moment where we were deflected by an inescapable legal boundary in the making of this project. So that was familiars, that is familiars. Um, we've kind of taken you through the elements we had in the kind of <coughs> building of it as well. You can kind of see what's going on more clearly with the system now itself. But there are some kind of larger points that came out of it um, that we've been really thinking about, um, both as we were developing it and kind of in subsequent months. The first point that kind of has been raising its head again and again is the idea of kind of visibilities. Um, in Familiars itself, we've explored the prevalence of unencrypted public data within logistical systems. And part of our aim in doing so has been to try and draw attention to what access we as citizens have to kind of observe it, um, to think about anxieties around data collection, use, and knowability. Um, but we're kind of, we're we're despite the kind of very strong visual element of this, we're kind of wary about talking about what we did in terms of visibility itself. 
And there's a growing body of work at the moment um, from across various different fields, different, different spaces, thinking about infrastructures, thinking about their presence. Um, and some of this work can be popularised as kind of the idea of making the invisible visible. And again, this kind of this spans out through a number of different people who are working in this area. Um, down at Sussex, there's Paul Nightingale's group who's working of it. Uh, there's Ingrid Barrington, there's James Bridal, there's Pro Pagland, there's Susan Lee Starr, who's been working around infrastructures for a very long time. There are a lot of people kind of working in very different, many different arms of this space. And the idea of kind of visibility can, can simplify what can be kind of quite a complex set of power relations and forms in the engagement. Um, I mean, part of this doesn't necessarily make much sense. You know, if we're thinking about particularly the logistical infrastructures, they're not necessarily invisible. You know, our starting point for this has been actually thinking about how the kind of these enormous, enormous things we can see, kind of planes in the sky, the kind of sound of a train kind of rumbling down tracks at the end of your garden, being able to see ships out to sea. These are massive, massive vessels, and even kind of the systems, the ports and the airports and train stations around them are very, very present. So they're not necessarily invisible. They're quite there. Um, and there's also something about kind of what it means to not see them, to not engage with them. We were thinking about this in terms of more paying attention to what's actually present, of acknowledging the agency we have in a given environment and acting on it. If we're thinking about something being just invisible, it can take power away from us, and making something visible is still quite a passive state. It's just there. It doesn't really imply any form of engagement. And what we had been thinking about throughout this was what engagement do we have with the system itself. So we're curious about kind of how what we were doing with this can engender attention to and exploring and in particularly autonomy around these systems. And that requires kind of quite some big questions to be asked of who gets access to access and both interpret this data as well. Um, invisibility itself can be heavily shaped by power and social relations, and that kind of also depends really what, on what logistical infrastructures we're talking about. So again, this is primarily logistics. This is primarily the three arms of planes, of trains, and of ships, and to an extent, kind of the ports and the airports um, around them as well. There's a really, um, there's a lovely essay published by um, a professor of the history of technology, Lee Vizen, uh, in the past week. And he kind of notes that one way of invisibility around infrastructure can be this almost intentional not looking at things, not looking at the built environment, like having too much shame to look at crumbling roads or crumbling railway stations. Um, and that might be the same form of shame that make us not look intentionally at other things that we're too embarrassed about. They're present, but that we don't see them. But for other infrastructures, the invisibility might be rendered through intense regulatory power, kind of what data is actually available and to whom, the scale of it, the materiality, or all of the above. So ideas around visibility are, don't necessarily work so well for what we're thinking about here. And that was one of the first things that came out of what we were talking about. So following on from this, the second point we want to raise is how our thinking around openness and ownership of this data changed as we went deeper into these systems. Was the data we captured open? In some definitions, yes, but was it accessible? Only with the equipment we used to gather it, and only from certain vantage points, and only by developing specific tech skills. Was it available for train data only partly, only as a spike, not as the full package? Was it legible? Again, once we'd organized it and passed the data available to us with particular technology and software. But we also made extremely specific aesthetic choices in how we presented this data to audience. Now, we're happy to, to speak about those choices in Q&A, um, but for now, our, our main interest is in these kind of broader systemic questions around what we were doing. These questions of ownership, access, and interpretation were tied densely in with each other and made us keenly aware of these obstructions that formed a part of this data's existence. But we got to see our audience's attitude to data shift, too. I mean, I think for most people... Um, possibly not necessarily for everyone in this room, but I think that, w that it could be argued that the standard engagement of data is a very kind of 2D affair, typically through screens, mostly through visualization techniques. 
Um, the really interesting thing that we got as feedback from the audience was in using an antenna and sort of front-loading the fact that the data was coming via uh, a, a kind of a legacy uh, communication infrastructure of radio became a very interesting um, realization for the audience that there's, you know, that A, kind of data kind of swims around you all the time in this sense and that you just need to turn up the right form of listening to be able to, to perceive it, but also to reframe it or disrupt the notion of it as being this kind of flat 2D thing that is sort of unavailable to most people. Frankly, you need expert, um, you know, very expert equipment or expert knowledge to be able to engage with it. But I think what this did is it reframed data or an interpretation of data as being more like a physical substrate that sits over the world rather than something non-human or distant from us, um, which for us was particularly crucial in an age where in the global north at least um, more and more open practices are being mediated by code or could be described as software. So to finish up, um, we looked at logistical infrastructures and we looked at communication infrastructure that sent data. And what we learned in the process of making and doing this was that we can't consider these things to be independent or distinct. The access that we had to the data that was coming from it was heavily mediated by physical and material factors, regulatory factors, and the systems and technologies and the embedded pathways, the legacies that these systems have come, have come up through, which for infrastructure, which you know, could exist at a very long temporal scale that exists for a very long time is quite critical. And for us, engaging with restrictions around it allowed us to engage more directly with the process and the politics of in intercepting data from these systems, which aren't necessarily designed to either talk to each other or be to intercepted, be intercepted by people outside of those systems as well. And we also engage with the processes and politics of making this data legible. We didn't so much at this point think, you know, we were at this curious point where there has been this kind of resurgent interest in various forms of infrastructure, logistical and otherwise, um, that we haven't so much discussed here, but that feels like for us a good point to close this part of it, go to Q&A and say thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.